0: Welcome to the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, where I believe a healthy world is based on transparent conversations. In today's episode of the Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, I sit down with the beautiful and articulate Victoria Felkar. She is an instructor and internationally renowned junior scholar which she is currently completing her doctoral studies at the University of British Columbia. Why did I have Victoria on? Because she holds a very unique position in the space. She is a social and cultural sport historian with a special interest in physical culture, performance enhancement, and her research has achieved international publication and award. Essentially, Victoria combines the history of what we are talking about as it relates to male-female hormonal manipulation, and the study of social ethics. She combines them, which makes the podcast so fascinating to hear the scientific aspect as well as the social-cultural aspect. We discuss, should women take oral contraceptives? What have we gotten wrong about the use of female hormones? And finally, strategies to optimize hormones for athletic performance. I strongly suggest that you take a moment to rate and subscribe to the podcast. If you love this episode, share it. And I'd love to highlight that with the new availability to pre-order my book, Forever Strong, you can get it on Amazon, you can go to my website, that there are communities that we have put in place for you so that you can actually be involved in Q&A with experts like Victoria. So head on over. To Amazon or my website to pre order the book Forever Strong, which goes on sale October 17th. Within that pre order, there will be a ton of free bonuses for you to interface with the best of the best. Let's get started. Very special thank you to Ned for sponsoring this episode of the show. I absolutely love their mellow super blend latte for sleep. It has adaptogens, amino acids, functional mushrooms, magnesium, the best ingredients all wrapped up into a chai-inspired drink. If you love cinnamon, clove, ginger, you will love this. What we do is we have it iced, so we make it towards the end of the day, blend it up. We use a little blender and put it in the fridge. Before we go to bed, about an hour, we drink it. It has Rishi, chaga, ashwagandha, all things that have been proven to be very beneficial in multiple capacities to the body. And Ned Share's third-party lab reports whose farm their products and their extraction process comes from. It doesn't have CBD, it doesn't have caffeine, and it doesn't have melatonin, which makes it very unique. This product tastes great, smells great, I am certain. This will be a regular in your nighttime ritual. So you can try it for yourself. Head on over to helloned.com slash Dr. Lion. That's helloned.com slash Dr. Lion. And you can get 15% off with the code Dr. Lion. A special thank you to First Form for sponsoring this episode of the show. I've been working with First Form for a very long time great company. And I'd love to highlight something that is going to help you train. And sometimes it's hard to get that get up and go, which is one reason why I often use a pre-workout. I love their Megawatt. I've been using it for a very long time. I love cherry. They have a lemonade flavor. They have a grape. You can decide. It has a whole host of B vitamins, magnesium, choline, L-tyrosine, helps with focus, also has natural caffeine. So if you are caffeine sensitive, this is uh, the one with caffeine is not the ideal product for you. If you do like caffeine, then this product is absolutely phenomenal. It has green coffee extract in it, a lot of great stuff. Highly, highly recommend, of course, check with your physician if you have any kind of sensitivities to any of those things. But if you don't, head on over to firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. That's firstform.com slash Dr. Lion. And when you spend $75, you will get free shipping. Victoria Felker, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you all about women's health, hormones, oral contraceptives, all of the things as it relates to sport performance. One of the reasons I'm so excited to have you on is you are just about finished with your PhD, and your research is incredibly unique. Again, with this podcast, we like to bring in individuals that are in the trenches and those that are changing the conversation, having innovative conversations. I would love for you to share a little bit about your particular research.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I um, It's honestly such an honor. Uh, I've seen all the rock stars that you've had on here, and I am so excited to be part of it. But um, so my work specifically looks at the use of pharmaceutical estrogens and progestins in the athletic female population. And I kind of have to start off at just the name itself because that throws some people off because it's not a common way to refer to a very common used um, group of pharmaceuticals. And so when I use the term pharmaceutical estrogens and progesterone, this includes anything from uh, HRT or hormone replacement therapy, all the way to hormonal contraceptives, all the way to, to the mono use of both pharmaceutical estrogens and progesterone. And the name for me is really important because it actually is a big part of the story about these drugs in that it is this huge umbrella Of drugs that often does get kind of brought down to only just talking about HRT or hormonal contraceptives when the reality is, is there's a ton of different compounds underneath those umbrellas and each of those different compounds interact with the body differently. Um, and that's a big piece of, uh, the puzzle that when we look at the athletic female population hasn't always been, um, observed properly within sport, both by those studying on more of like the sports science realm, but then also within sport medicine and those that are prescribing, Um, that there has definitely been, and as my work has kind of teased apart, this long drawn out history that I have to say when I first got into it. I did not know existed at all. I was so um, so ambivalent to it and and naive, and that I had my own story, which really interacted with me being a young female athlete put on the pill at a very young age and having health consequences as a result of it. And I kind of thought I was like, oh, it just one and done. And I was like, wow, no, actually, this is a big story that really within both the kind of hard sciences as well as more of the humanities hadn't been discussed before. And uh, you know, when we were talking earlier, I said uh, I, in my message, one of the big things is like, I just don't understand why. It doesn't, it, to me, it's such a, uh, it's, it's right there. Um, so my work really is trying to bring attention to it, both from that hard science standpoint, but then also from the more social side of it as well. Um, the sociology, the anthropology, because I'm, I sit in the middle, I'm an interdisciplinary researcher
0: which is so unusual. Uh, Typically, uh, it's very unusual, especially when uh, I have guests on, it seems as if it's really um, divisive in terms of what their area of specialty is, either they are clinicians, or PhDs, and typically science, uh, PhDs, and or real life experience in the trenches, individuals that have excelled, or have been in a particular situation and kind of going forth. And what's so beautiful about you? And and I do want to talk about the place in which we are now as it relates to the use of hormones and the athletic population. Or again, I'm I'm sitting here across from you thinking, is hormones the right word? Yeah. Is it a steroid hormone? Yeah. Is it oral contraceptive use? How do we reframe this conversation? And, and what can the listeners get from this, because you do bridge both quite a, in a fascinating way, the historical aspect, which by understanding the history, we can understand where we're going, the historical aspect, as well as you are a scientist. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, that's a long, a, a long yeah. story to say, <laughs> please, if yeah. you could bring us up to speed as to where we are now. Mm where some of the misconceptions are, what we are doing as it relates to the athletic population. Because again, you and I have sent numerous papers back and forth and within the current thinking, people will say the current evidence shows no influence of women's menstrual cycle phase on strength and performance and adaptation to resistance training. Uh, and then other people will say, well, absolutely, we should train for our cycles. Where are we yeah. and what is happening? Yeah. That's a great question. (laughs) You know, one of the most fascinating
1: things is that when we actually look at the body of research on the female athlete, there is very little research. And then you kind of peel back another and you go, is the research that's there, solid. Like, are our methodologies where they need to be? Are we accounting for certain variables? And you scrape off all of that paper. You're left with very little to look from. You're left with a very small pool, which when you think about it, we're in 2023. Um, It really, I think, number one, sheds light to the fact that this is a really complex topic. And the history, as you mentioned, it, it's really embedded in our current everyday practices. And I think that's one thing that really fascinated me was that I kept asking questions like, why, how, where did we come from? Where did this get, why are people thinking about it? And as a result, that that led me down that history route. But if we just go back to today, so where are we today? There are a ton of varying opinions about how Female menstrual cycle influences performance, and then also how performance influences the menstrual cycle and overall female athlete health. Um, so it, think of it almost as like a, a bi directional, and that there are, and that has existed, I mean, since mid 18 1900s. It, it's been a long saga of this discussion of like, how does the menstrual cycle influence how we perform? Does it impact? our um, endurance or our strength at different phases of the cycle? And then also how does performance, particularly high performance, influence female athlete health and the menstrual cycle reproductive capacity? Um, You know, if there we think of even, I mean, gosh, in the 1980s, women were not allowed to run the marathon uh, for perceptions around how strenuous and dangerous it was for their reproductive capacity and their menstrual cycle. Um, And so it's not that long ago. And I would argue that today we're still seeing people having these kind of archaic ideas around how performance impacts the menstrual cycle and female athlete body. Um, But I'm sure we're going to get into that. So I don't want to skip ahead. So lots of different opinions, lots of different ideas. There are people that um, do ascribe to the idea that yes, indeed, menstruation um, has a massive impact on performance, and we need to be training around it, um, really titrating our activity or even our um, utilization of certain dietary strategies around the menstrual cycle. And then there's the other camp of people that go like, you know, wait a second, when you actually look at the science, we might not actually be getting this right. There might be a lot more to this, or maybe we don't have the actual scientific evidence that it, to give us that straightforward, clear-cut perspective of, yes, indeed, there is this direct link between, let's just say, the follicular phase, which is that first half of the menstrual cycle, having you know blank impact on athletic performance. And I would say I fall into camp number two um, because when you do look at the data itself and when you really kind of c- claw at it, you see that there has been just so much misunderstanding in not only sport sciences, but also I think within, I mean, sciences and uh, particularly biomedical and medical sciences around what it is a woman's menstrual cycle is, what it is not, what how, what are the hormones involved? How do these hormones differ? And more importantly, how the individual is really important to this conversation. Um, back when I used to teach in um, undergraduate and graduate classes, I always used to say to my students that the, the human body is terrible to do research off of because (laughs) it's terrible. Because if we think about just basic scientific method and trying to control variables, there is so much difference between me and you and our cycles and our hormones and our life course that led up to this point today. Even if we were doing twin studies, there is just so much difference between humans um, and that's what really I think gets this conversation um, starts to tease it apart as if we just start to really think about like who are we studying and how are we studying them? And the reality is is that within the female athlete population there's just insufficient evidence and that the evidence by and large, and this is, doesn't mean everybody, but by and large the evidence that does exist is very limited. And there's a lot of research that has been based on either poor research practices or misunderstanding or even just really s- sexist stereotypes around the female body or around hormones themselves that don't necessarily reflect what we now know today. Um, and so when it comes to even the conversation around hormonal drugs, um, I always use the term uh, steroidal hormones um, because I get really nitpicky about that stuff, but I, I for me personally, it matters big um, that we need to call a spade a spade. Um, and that when we talk about like steroid hormones, um, I, I refer to it as like the big three family being androgens, estrogens, and then progesterone, and then your kind of metabolites of progesterone. Um, But those are the big three. I don't refer to them as sex steroids. I don't refer to them as even reproductive steroids. Uh, I might slip up every now and again, but I try not to because I really want to try to get into specifically the, the sporting world that we have to get away from that very limited idea that these drugs are or these hormones themselves, are only related to reproductive function in both the male and female body. That they're only related to, like, quote, sex, when we know that that's not true at all. Um, And when you look back into history, you really see that starting to come out. But unfortunately, um, sport science, sport medicine really has not uh, accommodated for these changes um, in actually what these drugs are, or what these hormones are, um, and how they do vary across individuals, and just the massive amount of uh, pharmaceuticals that exist in those umbrellas.
0: Hmm. That is so interesting. And I noticed that when you were talking about estrogen, you didn't say estrogen, you said estrogens. Mm-hmm. And I was reading one of these papers, and it, it said that it's not a particular hormone, but it's a class of compounds, yeah. common endogenous hormones from the class of estrogens, including estradiol, estrone, estriol, then of course there's synthetic estrogens, not endogenous to animals like, you know, phytoestrogens, all these different things. Um, And what I'm hearing you say is while we've typically thought about estrogens, progestins, testosterone as it relates to reproduction, Mm -hmm. how do these relate to sport? What do we know? What have we potentially gotten wrong? I would say, why don't we start with potentially what we've gotten wrong? Yeah. Because that allows us to shift the conversation to what can we now build upon? Yeah, absolutely. So, first and foremost,
1: <laughs> I mean, at the crux of like seven years of research here, but um, we have done a very good job at creating uh, what's called biological dualism or binary thinking around the sexes. Um, and in 2023, we know that it's way more complicated than that. Um, but nonetheless, you know, when the whole concept of sex um, was attached to hormones, it wasn't actually that long ago. It was like 1905, 1908 was when the research really was picking up. Um, and, and it was associated right away that hormones were with the gonadal organs. So they thought that, hey, testes, testicles, that's where testosterone is from. That's why it's named for that. And then we have estrogen they only had like one back in the day that they knew of at the time and then progesterone didn't get named or they really weren't sure they called it the yellow hormone right away which another story for another day but um so right away they started naming these things i mean estrogen is named eustress uh, so it it's directly related to ideas around the female body and that these drugs they thought only existed in the female body and that and drugs I mean by hormones as well um, and that testosterone and androgens only existed in the male body and so they named them as a result of that. Um, and so we have this perception that testosterone and other androgens are inherently good and needed and positive for athleticism. Um, that they are needed for strength, that they are needed for endurance, that they are needed to uh, get big, run fast, jump high, and that it's the androgens. And if we actually start again scraping at that research, what we find is that that really goes back to these I- really archaic and historical ideas around the male and female body. I mean, women were not allowed to participate in sport. We didn't connect their bodies, their hormones, their reproductive function, um or their their ovaries with physical, Activity or prowess or vitality. It was the opposite. It was, I mean, the eternally wounded woman, the one who was always sick, particularly around menstruation. So there were these really, really, really um, tough negative stereotypes applied to the female body and these kind of more positive based ones applied to the male body. And those got reinforced within um, understandings of hormones. And unfortunately, if we think of today, we still associate sport with testosterone. And the best example I can use, which is like, For me, just was like a mind blowing thing when I started actually looking at it was the fact that, you know, when I say to people, well, why are anabolic steroids banned in sport? They're like, well, that's because they boost performance. Like, duh, I can't believe you're asking me that. And I'm like, but do they for everybody? And do they work the same for everybody? And what about estrogen and progesterone? And people actually laugh. Like, I've been laughed at academic conferences before when I've made that statement of, like, why aren't we thinking about estrogens and progesterones as being positive for sport performance. And when you start looking at the literature, you just see how little actually exists that studied systematically how estrogens and progesterones affect human performance. and the research that does exist, there's some animal studies, there's some mouse models that have been done, um, but overall just very, very, very limited. Um, and then there's other research that's been done, but not very good. Um, but nonetheless, we just have to be really open to the idea that in my opinion, um, professionally from looking at the research, we really can't label testosterone as being just inherently good for a sport without also thinking about estrogens and progesterone um that there is enough research that exists in other worlds outside of sport that talks about the importance of let's say progesterone for our nervous system um and we know sport has an impact on our nervous system upregulation. regulation so why wouldn't something like progesterone be beneficial for especially female athletes to have um that just to me goes goes like this um same thing let's just say with uh muscle um development. There has been some really great studies done on estrogen, Um, not necessarily the impact of it, but what happens when you don't have it for muscle mass and what happens when you don't have progesterone. So in that kind of um, menopausal Postmenopausal cohort of individuals, why are we reducing muscle mass at such a rapid rate? Um, Androgens do play a role in this as well, which blows my mind that they've completely forgotten that part in the research. Um, But nonetheless, they have shown that our hormones are so important, and it's the balance, it's where receptors are, you know, there's just so much there. So the thing I think if I could, you know, dilute it down to one basic statement, it would be that uh, steroid hormones matter for human performance but it's in how much in whose body for how long and it's not just levels it's also receptors and metabolism it's such a it's a much bigger system that we have to think about we really need to open our eyes up to see that it is, there's a harmony and a serendipitous that kind of um, network of different interactions that have to occur to be able to create the most optimal levels of human performance.
0: How far away are we from figuring out those levels? Do you think that we're ever going to be able to understand what, you know, what level of estrogens that we need to optimize a particular performance or what blood levels of progesterone we're going to need? You do make a very insightful statement in that it's not just The amount that we're getting, but also the receptors and the clearance. Yeah. Where do you think it's going to go in the future? How can we start to look at potentially athletes, individuals, blood labs, and target treatment? Yeah. I think it has to come back to the individual.
1: I really think we have to look at the individual because if we look at an example of, let's say, a female athlete and we think of um Let's just make a little like case study here. So we have a female athlete. Well, we
0: we do have a case, we do have a case oh, study, but maybe we won't talk. about it. We do. Oh, okay. maybe we can. Uh, she can remain nameless if she wants. I'm sure she she wouldn't want to, but uh, we'll 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 leave her nameless for now. Okay.
1: Um, but I was uh, so. Don't think it's the same one we're talking about, but uh, <laughs> for our purposes for this little kind of example, let's say we have a female high-performance athlete that had her first menses at age 13. Um, So 13, very average onset of menses. You actually have an influx of particular... Uh, steroid hormones, even before that first bleed. Uh, estradiol typically is about one year, but it varies across individuals. Androstenedione, dione, which is an androgen, it increases for about that first year, but it varies across individuals. But let's just say that she went on, uh, got put on a hormonal contraceptive about six months or maybe four bleeds after the first bleed. And she was on a hormonal contraceptive um, from the time that she was 13 and a half all the way to 28. Okay. Then she goes off and through you know various means is able to uh, over time regain a ovulatory menstrual cycle. So in this example, a couple of important things to take out is one, that individual did not have exposure to progesterone. Uh, we know that in that first about seven to 10 years after Uh, menarche or the first bleed that it's very likely that we're going to have a high fluctuation rate you know it's the roller coaster of hormones and that you're more likely to have anovulatory menstrual cycles um, as your body is really learning and adapting and figuring out how to develop this really complex system of of just so complex in terms of how it relates to internal and external factors but when you're on a hormonal contraceptive you start Stop the ability to ovulate. So you're exposed to a synthetic progesterone, so it's spelled totally different than progesterone. Um, the molecule does not look the same and it doesn't act the same. Um, moreover, the typically, I mean, there's some newer formulas of contraceptives that are now using um, a more of a bioidentical uh, estradiol, but by and large, ethanol estradiol is like the major number one kind of synthetic estrogen that's used in contraceptives. And that has been shown to be quite a bit more potent um, than what our bodies naturally make. So we have this individual who never had the opportunity to make and get exposed to natural endogenous levels of estradiol and estrone and estriol and all those metabolites, and also didn't get the exposure to progesterone then she comes off it's going to take a little bit for her body to get used to not only making but receiving metabolizing her own endogenous hormones because they look different they act different i mean there's a beautiful body of literature especially within um, neuroscience that has looked at just how different the synthetics used in contraceptives are compared to our own natural endogenous hormones. But long story short, one thing that you know, we can take away from this is that that individual may have a different, let's say, muscular response to a synthetic hormone than a bioidentical what hormone body is making hormone. And this could massively impact performance outcomes. So it's really hard to study then how optimal levels might be because for in a case like that she might feel particularly and I don't know if you've seen this in your own practice I've seen this in my own work though where you see people that are kind of trying to make hormones again after they've been really deficient for a while and that they do have more of a magnified kind of somatic response as their body's getting used to making progesterone again or making estradiol again and even if you test serum levels even if you do a i mean a very robust let's say once a week lab test for lh fsh estradiol um, that you can, you'll see that even at low levels on serum testing they will reflect with higher kind of symptomatic of elevated estradiol levels because their body's just not used to it and so that individual might feel great on suboptimal levels initially and then, as her body gets used to it, things get back into uh, flow. She might then feel much better at what we would consider to be like more optimal levels. So, you know, long story short, I don't think we can define these really rigid ranges. Um, I truly don't because there's just way too much individual variance. Um, particularly when we look at that female population, just recognizing the amount of individuals that probably do have regular anovulatory cycles, they're going to feel a lot different on very low levels of progesterone than what they would be getting if they actually ovulated, you know, that 600 and up range. So just, you know, no, I don't think we can. And I I think they're going to keep trying and keep not being successful.
0: Uh, And what you're saying is when a young athlete goes on oral contraceptives, it shuts down their natural ability to produce hormones, which... While they're still getting a regular cycle per se, regular from an external perspective, from the patient's perspective, uh, physiologically, it's not uh, exactly the same. It's not the same kind of quote natural cycle. The hormone fluxes, the body's ability to make and maintain their own hormones are, are different. Mm-hmm. You're also saying yeah. that it potentially impacts performance or potentially impacts musculature. Mm-hmm. From a young age, am I hearing you correctly? Absolutely, and you know what's what's been interesting is it's not just musculature, it's also
1: adiposity and uh, fat-free mass or fat mass. Um, they've also seen substrate utilization be different, um, and it varies actually with different forms of contraceptives. There are certain uh, progesterins particularly, that are more pro-metabolic or like kind of anti-metabolic, uh, and it varies how long an individual's exposed to them, what their reproductive state was before initiating how long they were on and at what, what dose. So that's where it makes studying them so complicated because there are so many different variables involved. Um, and that there's, I mean, even for muscle recovery, um, they've seen higher rates of like C-reactive protein after exercise in elite athletes uh, that were on hormonal contraceptives. They've seen alterations with different um, bone structures, depending on the type of contraceptive and when it was initiated. Um, And so these are all variables that will alter and change how somebody's performance, uh, how we're able to kind of optimize it when we actually start looking at what is affected.
0: I'm so grateful to have partnered with House of Macadamias. I love macadamia nuts because number one, they have 30% less carbohydrates than almonds, making it the perfect snack for anything that you're trying to do if you are on a lower carbohydrate plan at this time they have more healthy mono unsaturated fats than any popular nut head on over to houseofmacadamias.com Slash Dr. Lion. Use the code Dr. Lion for a 20% off discount on your first order. One of our family favorites are the boxes of nuts. So they have roasted sea salt, chocolate dipped, white chocolate raspberry, all which are extremely low in sugar. They taste phenomenal. They're easy to travel with. These are good choices. House of Macadamias has done a great job and partnered with over 94 of the best farmers in Africa. This is amazing, and it is a company that does good for the world. If you are on a vegan diet, keto diet, high-protein diet, paleo diet, whatever diet you are on, this fits in beautifully. And they have great products, especially their macadamia nuts with different flavors. Head on over to houseofmacadamias.com slash lion and use your code for 20% off. Thank you to Apollo Neuro for sponsoring this episode of the show. I have to say the Apollo wearable is one of my favorite tech products. I use mine all the time. In fact, you will oftentimes see me wearing it in interviews or just when I'm talking. It is a wearable that improves your body's ability to manage stress. The Apollo wearable helps you sleep better. It helps you navigate your day, stay calm, be focused, be more present, more energetic. It was developed by neuroscientists and physicians. And what it does is it delivers a silent vibration that conditions your nervous system to recover, rebalance. And what you can do is it syncs to your phone. So you'll head on over to your Apollo app, put in a program, I Love Focus, they even have one called Power Nap. So for the middle of the day, it is just incredible. And it's unlike other fitness wearables because it doesn't track anything. What it does is it actually actively improves your health by strengthening your nervous system response. It's safe, it's natural. You can feel your best. You don't have any side effects and no drugs. Head on over to apolloneuro.com slash Dr. Lion and you will get $40 off the Apollo wearable. It is hands down my most favorite tech piece. I, I can't say enough about it. I absolutely love it. ApolloNeuro.com slash Dr. Lion, and you'll get $40 off the Apollo wearable. And would you over, would you overarching say that you don't recommend young athletes or athletes in general to go on oral contraceptives, that there are potentially better ways to manage symptoms, pregnancy, yeah. all the things? Yeah. So
1: I am, at the end of the day, I'm a feminist and I believe in women's rights and I believe in access to um, birth control. I don't agree with blindly giving individuals a pharmaceutical that could potentially change their life without talking about the risks and without educating them so that that individual can make their own decision. I think informed consent is an incredibly important part of this conversation that has been completely left out in part due to like just this incestuous relationship between researchers and pharmaceutical companies and everything else. So I do believe that um, there are better forms of contraceptives, yes, absolutely. I do agree that there are better forms of, let's say, managing um, a menstrual cycle that is maybe not optimal or symptom-free for an individual. We have to ask why before just going on a substance. Um, And the thing about contraceptives is that there is very easy access to them. And so individuals may go on them because they're just not educated that there might be a better option for them. Um, Or they might think that it's just, you know, it's just for now, it's not going to be forever, not recognizing that, hey, depending on all the other things that make up who you are, there may be more long-term implications, particularly maybe if you haven't had a regular ovulatory cycle um, prior to going on, or if you start it, too young. I do agree that the age of onset needs to be pushed. Um, you know, if you look back and again going back to some of the historical stuff, if you look back in time, they, it was never intended to be a drug for young girls and women. Um, that was never. It was actually eighteen was the initial cutoff. Um, depending on where people were.
0: Meaning, meaning the cutoff of
1: starting, starting the Yeah. the cutoff. Yeah. So it was, you had to be over the age of 18 and other countries, it was even as high as like 22 years old. Um, and initially it also was only intended to be used for about six months or so. And they kept just pushing that time, pushing that time, pushing that time, even when there were voices speaking out against it. Um, just like with some of the issues with long-term like uh, sterility or infertility, Post use. Um, There were people pushing back about that, but they got definitely suppressed, um, unfortunately, within the literature. And you just see that age. You see the indications going up, too. Initially, they were intended actually for. Um, I mean, it's just a cra- stranger than, than friction. Like it's just the craziest truth to how contraceptives develop, but initially that they did hide that they were anti-ovulatory um, that marketers made a very strategic move because ovulation in the 1950s and 40s and even into 30s or the idea about having a bleed that was such an important part to uh to womanhood and so uh they essentially hit it so there are many doctors out there even today uh, research has shown that don't actually know that contraceptives completely blunt ovulation um and that there could be potential implications for uh, fertility afterwards um so it's you know it's just I I shake my head because it's just the the craziest story when you actually start going like they did what and they I mean this is a time before clinical trials were what they are today this is a time before the FDA had the rules that they have today and so they got away with a lot and nobody's taken that kind of question today and been like what are you sure young girls should be going on these are you sure that we should be having women on them for 30 some odd years and then just you know having letting them go off in mid 40s and say see you later good luck. Um, and not talk to them about, Hey, there might be implications for bone density or, Hey, there might be implications for brain health. Um, those aren't conversations you're seeing happen. And that to me is really, um, upsetting. It's dangerous. It's upsetting. I, I just, it keeps me up at night. It's why I've gone into this route of, uh, research. Cause it, it's just, in my opinion, not okay.
0: Well, we're definitely going to get your experience out there. Uh, and this podcast, because, you know, we do get, we had Stacey Sims on, we do get a lot of questions about female health, uh, oral contraceptives, female hormones, sport performance, weight loss, the all the things. And um, having these conversations that are well thought out are critically important so that people can make decisions. I also will say that the young girls or the athletes or many women are going to say, well, I don't want to get pregnant and oral contraceptives are what has been offered to me. What are some other alternative options that potentially have limited impact on body composition and sport performance? Yeah. So I believe with
1: all of all of me believes like tracking is so important. So basal temperature tracking is so important to be able to understand whether or not you ovulate because if you're not ovulating okay, yeah we, we, we have a we explained that for the yeah explain yeah the temperature uh, the that for yeah. the listener so your so progesterone is a such a cool hormone love it it is thermogenic um so it increases your body temperature you create progesterone if you have an ovulatory cycle, which not all bleeds are ovulatory and not all bleeds have sufficient amounts of progesterone produced, Um, particularly when we're talking about the female athlete population, there are um, some studies that have shown that they are more likely to have an ovulatory or shortened luteal phases, which is that second half of the menstrual cycle when you are producing progesterone and as a result are not producing sufficient amounts of progesterone. So progesterone, because it's thermogenic, if an individual ovulates, their body temperature should rise in that second half of the cycle. And so through tracking, not just things like length of bleed or cramping occurrences or mood changes, or let's say uh, fluid retention changes through tracking your temperature, you can actually see whether or not your body has potentially ovulated. And this is also a really great tool to be able to say like, Hey, I'm not, I'm bleeding, but I'm not ovulating. And then to be able to pursue why that might be the case. Um, Are you, are you, you know, uh, in a stressful period of life? Are you in a period where you're, say, going through uh, very tumultuous changes? Um, Are you not sleeping sufficiently? Are you not overall eating enough? Are you um, having any other types of health indications that may be Influencing this. So, that ability to ovulate is, I mean, it's a superpower. It is so, so, so important. And that through tracking, we're actually not only able to A, find out whether or not we're ovulating, B, find out how long um, our follicular and luteal phase lengths are to see that we're making enough progesterone um, and then also to be able to test for it. Because if you just go in on day three of your cycle and get lab work done for progesterone, it's probably going to tell you that you're low. Because that's not when progesterone has been produced. That's going to be at the tail end. And if it's like null, then typically that tells us that either you didn't produce enough or you didn't produce it. Um, That's typically what research has shown at this point. Um, The third thing too about basal temperature is that you can use it for fertility awareness method. It's called FAM. And so you can calculate when are you most likely to conceive in your cycle if you have Um, intercourse that's unprotected. And that if you calculate it, and it's going to be different depending on what your cycle is, but there's lots of different amazing resources online uh, to help women understand this, that you can be able to then use protection. um, And I always say to create a buffer too. Uh, So if it says, you know, these five days, you're more likely to conceive, um, create a buffer, maybe seven or eight days and use protection during that time. Um, And that That is a way that you can not only help with fertility, but also help with your health because progesterone production is such an important and critical part of female health that has been just absolutely forgotten by not only the medical community, but the lay population. There are so many women when I go to speak at events or do consulting work or after podcasts that go like, I didn't know what that was. No, I didn't know that you might not make progesterone. I didn't know that I'm supposed to, um, and then kind of a, a misunderstanding the big difference between a, a synthetic progesterone and progesterone. Um, and that, you know, as I've mentioned in the female athlete population, there is a great concern that athletes aren't, uh, producing enough progesterone or at least not, um, sufficient levels for a long enough because of just what sport is asking us to do. Sport is asking us to push our bodies, uh, particularly if we're in a competition season or we're doing a weight cut or we're, um, let's say tapering into, uh, six weeks where you're going to track meets every weekend. Like your body is going to go through higher levels of stress that you may not have the resources physiologically, psychologically, socially, and emotionally to be able to actually, um, cope with those demands because we know from research, it's not just about, I mean, body fat and athletes, like, no, it's not just about your body fat. Not, not, not oh, at all. Um, that, you know, our mental health plays such a big role. There's been amazing research by, uh, an individual called Sarah Berga and a couple of other of our research team that have shown that, you know, just thinking negatively about your body, just having body dissatisfaction can induce anovulatory cycles in otherwise regular women. That's big. That means that not even exercising, not even diet, that we can stop ourselves from having this really important physiological process and not just for fertility. I mean, I've got lots of athletes going, I don't want to get pregnant. I don't want to have kids. And I'm like, but no, progesterone is so much more important than just fertility. I mean, brain health, bone health, cardiovascular health, neurological health, thyroid health. I mean, I can keep going. It's just such an important hormone um, that we've just completely ignored. Um, it's just, it's terrible. Um, so basal and tracking.
0: How do our bodies? <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. We, in clinical practice, we use progesterone all the time, which yeah. you, you actually know this, we use micronized progesterone at night. How does an individual make progesterone, and is there a way that they could optimize progesterone production, natural progesterone yeah. production? Yeah, so progesterone in women is typically
1: speaking going to be predominantly produced through the process of ovulation. Um, there is other you know, potential adrenal, but very, very little, very little. Um, We have to have an incredibly complicated array of systems in place to be able to promote ovulation and thus progesterone production. It is, um, you know, I put up this model in an event last fall and people were like jaws on the floor and I'm like, it is, there's a lot involved. It's not just as simple as our hypothalamus sends signals to our Uh, pituitary and our pituitary and our brain send signals to our ovaries and bam, wham, we're done ovulate. No, it's so much more complicated because we actually have to have sufficient amounts of estradiol. We have to have sufficient amounts of DHEA and testosterone. We have to have sufficient um, gonadotropins, uh, which are coming from our Uh, our pituitary and our hypothalamus. So FSH and LH, and they have to be at the right frequency and ratio. And all of that kind of container of things has to also have the right amount of, um, I mean, from everything from like mitochondria and how we utilize substrate has to be working properly to inflammatory markers, to thyroid function. Um, There is just such this crazy network of things that have to be in place. Um, Now, the caveat is, is that not everybody has an a sensitive um reproductive function. But a lot of women, if they have kind of had derailments early on, are going to be more sensitive to like subtle changes that can just derail this capacity for ovulation. Um, but maybe we'll get into that later. Um but anyway, so with ovulation, we are essentially and an yeah. ovulation optimist yeah. would be
0: releasing an egg. Yes, releasing for, an egg, for exactly. Or potentially the um the wingman. Yes. Who is listening? Uh, there you go. Come in, and
1: you know. Now, now you know. Water that garden. Um, <laughs> but with that, with that egg. So that egg, by the time it gets to so our our ovaries, and there's a big debate right now about like, are you born with a set number of eggs, or do you continue to develop them? Do you degrade them, and can you get them back? Like, it, there's a big, big debate going on. But our ovaries contain little tiny follicles. Those little tiny follicles are how we create a ton of Hormones and biochemicals, not just estrogen and progesterone. It's it's we have DHEA, as I mentioned, and testosterone, and androstenedione, and there's there's just a lot that goes on. Um, and so, in order for us to be able to ovulate, we have to have all of these kind of pre hormones in place. Um, we have to have an egg that's healthy and responsive. And then, when we do get that mid cycle spike in luteinizing hormone if that egg is ready and in place and has the ability to uh, potentially be fertilized and if it doesn't then we will make progesterone uh, the corpus luteum is what the main part of that is that makes progesterone so with progesterone production though in order to optimize it I, one of the things that I learned from one of my my mentors was that it's you know progesterone production in a woman is not only a marker of all cause health but it also reflects it. So not only is it going to be a marker of somebody's overall health state, but it's also going to be able to reflect how their body is functioning. It's, it's, it's reinforcing it and it's giving it. It's this beautiful uh, serendipity that occurs and that with an individual, when they say are not ovulating either at all, an anovulatory cycle, or if they are having uh, insufficient levels of progesterone production, whether that be a shortened luteal phase or an egg that maybe just is not robust enough to be able to create as much progesterone as required. One of the things I recommend people doing is just taking that step back and going like, am I healthy? (laughs) Number one thing, very simple. And being honest with yourself, like, are you, are you training more than what your body maybe is used to? As an individual, Um, if you maybe weren't exposed to high levels of physical activity, particularly during that very important kind of puberty place for individuals, if you're training well over excess, then maybe we do have uh, potential for your body to either need more substrate or recovery or to be able to support it through other ways. Um, Do you have optimal um, emotional and psychological coping mechanisms? Uh, Do you have any type of issues with sleep? Do you have uh, a nutrient-dense diet, including protein? Because uh, we know that that does play a big role in it. We have to have the right amount of substrate. not too. It's like the Goldilocks, not too little, not too much. It's that sweet spot and that that will change over our life course and what that's composed of might change too. But we know carbohydrates are so important um, because they have looked at how low carbohydrate intake can directly impact an ability to create an adequate amount of kind of follicular, uh, follicular genesis or the creation of of steroid hormones from our ovaries. Um, so I kind of take that, start start there, and then kind of begin to explore what are potential factors that may be negatively influencing um, ovulation to occur, and what can we do about them? What makes sense? Um, you know, in a high-performance athlete that, say, three weeks before a very big event, are we going to realistically say like yeah you're gonna be ovulating no I'm very pragmatic there I'm like okay more likely than not we're not going to ovulate and that the more disruptive your bleed is or that um, second half of your menstrual cycle that premenstrual phase is the more destructive it is the heavier the bleeding the cramping the mood swings the the changes in sleep patterns or digestion or just overall irritability that is a very important sign that something is probably off with that ratio of estradiol and progesterone and then gives us kind of a thing of a a point to go okay well what uh you know cramping we know can be gravely affected from insufficient progesterone we know that heavy bleeds can be impacted by insufficient progesterone uh mood disturbances there is a sweet spot and you know the pms pmdd literature it's evolving rapidly because they finally started to I think change the paradigm of like progesterones are not the same as progesterone. So we got to research it a little bit differently. Um, but they, those all give us really important clues. And so for a high performance athlete, typically what I see, and I know that we're probably similar in this, is that they, they will experience disruptive menstrual cycles or none at all. Um, and if they're pr- producing none at all, there's no bleed. We're not then just looking at an issue of no progesterone. We're then typically also looking at an issue of insufficient estradiol and insufficient uh, androgens as well because we got to go back up chain. So,
0: I think that answered it. Um no, it did. And and you bring up a really good point. Let's say an individual is a high performance athlete and they're not making any hormones. Mm. We also see that with individuals who are under a lot of stress, very entrepreneur, you know, entrepreneurial people that are really pushing their minds and bodies to the next level in sport the question is can you actually replace testosterone and estrogen and progesterone it is very difficult even when you show a clinical need yeah. has to go through multiple chains and even at that point the athlete is always worried about if they were to win a medal or if they were to win an event are they going to be looked down upon mm-hmm. how do we begin to treat that mm-hmm. Um, do you have thoughts on initial treatments? I'm sure it's going to include micronized progesterone. I'm sure it's going imp- to include estradiol, uh, perhaps even testosterone. What does you know? What are your thoughts on it, and what does the literature indicate is reasonable yeah. for treatment? So, I mean,
1: all great points, but I always look at what's what who the individual is first, and then also like what sport. So, has this individual let's say gone through puberty, had regular ovulatory cycles, and then they just go away three weeks before or like the CrossFit open or something like that. But they were able to maintain it all throughout the rest of the competition season. So that individual's kind of pathway forward might look different for me than somebody who has had chronic menstrual cycle dysfunction, not sure if they've ovulated or not, maybe has been off and on hormonal contraceptives. That's like a different pathway that I would take that person. So I try to think of it almost as like I'm a very optimistic person. And I go like, it, typically speaking, if that's an individual that just loses it three weeks before the open um, and that you know in the past was able to spontaneously get it back, I try to buffer and support to the best of my ability, get them to continue to monitor and to um, track different variables that are characteristics of kind of hormonal fluctuations. And we just take it step by step. Because I think if we come in too hard too fast, With treatment, um, and we don't know exactly where that person's hormonal capacity is, we can actually cause um, more symptoms or cause their system just to completely kind of fracture and maybe end up in a more detrimental place than if we just had a more of a hands-off approach and said, hey, this makes sense based off of what you're asking of your body. This makes sense that you may not ovulate for one to even three months around your major competition season. And What we have to do, though, is make sure that you have the tools in place to promote you to ovulate. Um, We want to try to promote it to the best of our abilities um, and then more of that hands-off approach. Now, somebody who has had this more tumultuous relationship with ovulation, that's where we do need to, in my opinion, kind of investigate. Like, are you somebody that's going to be competing you know, off and on, off and on, all year round? Or are you somebody that's got more of like a delineated, like on season, off season? Because that gives us a little bit more room to be able to actually not only figure out like what's going on, but then also be able to find the most optimal route to help elevate and bring back hormone levels. Um, If you're even able to do that, depending on why we're not getting them in the first place. Exactly. Some individuals that like, yeah, you know, and I can talk from personal experience, myself included. You know, I had such a crazy first like 10 years of my reproductive cycle that my ovaries now are like, Hey, bye, um, we're not going to function the way that we, you know, should classically function, uh, you add an epigenetics and genetics and everything else in there. And that's okay. I am not broken there. You know, there, I know that that is reflective of so many variables. So what I have to do is be able to monitor, control, and modulate to the best of my abilities. And that, it is going to change over time as women's reproductive functions do. And I am totally, you know, okay with that. But obviously I'm a researcher in this world. So it's a lot easier for somebody <laughs> to like me to do that. Um, I think for the average person that, you know, first number one thing is that giving somebody bioidentical oral micronized progesterone, awesome, beautiful thing to do if they're making sufficient amounts of estradiol. If their estradiol is also really, really low, they can be more symptomatic um, in terms of feeling more bloated or lethargic, irritable, because we've now created an imbalance. It's like you know, I have a lot of women I've worked with that feel better on no hormones than having right. this kind of altered um, ratio of estrogen and progesterone that's now like also um, non. Uh, physiological. So we definitely need to be able to pinpoint like what's going on and how can we really slowly to add in and titrate up. Uh, basic kind of rule of thumb for me is that the research on um, transdermal or topical progesterone is very, very limited. Um, Very, very limited that they really don't still quite understand. If you apply a progesterone cream, is that going to have the same benefits as an oral micronized bioidentical progesterone? Uh, Drug name is Prometrium. yes or no, we don't know yet. Uh, Unfortunately, they haven't done the same kind of research to figure out if, you know, if it's just capillary blood or if it's actually going systemic. Um, Same thing with vaginal. So vaginal progesterone um, can be very effective in certain individuals, but we might not get that same beautiful effect for the brain, for the actual. um, So progesterone will convert to allopregnenolone and then, you know, down chain into GABA, uh, and GABA is a really important uh, neurotransmitter that we need to have sufficient levels, particularly as a high-performance athlete. Um, and so with progesterone, we always have to go, and I think this is the same for all drugs, there are different forms, there are different routes of administration, and they don't act all the same. So with progesterone orally, we're going to have a much different um, biochemical response in the body than transdermal or with vaginal. And so we have to pick the right form for what are we trying to do. Um, and we also have to try to pick the right dose for what are we trying to do. And I would suggest go slow, (laughs) go slow. Even if you have to try to find it through compounding, go slow, because especially if you've never had progesterone production and you start on like 300 milligrams of progesterone, you are not going to feel good your brain is not going to be happy with you. So you do definitely need to be able to be flexible and fluid with your dosing. When it comes to estradiol, so estradiol is such a fascinating one because we know that with estradiol, um, transdermal routes, whether we're talking about cream or the patch, are metabolized very differently than oral. And that we actually have seen in research a lot less risk when used Transdermally, um, and that that is such a cool thing to actually be able to play with because some of the concerns about estrogen, um, specifically estradiol replacement, around blood clots or how you know liver mel abnormalities that you don't see that when it's transdermal. The other cool thing about transdermal is that you can definitely titrate and tweak your dosing, um, which is a, a really important thing in my opinion to do when we're trying to get somebody's body. Gradually exposed to something that maybe they're not used to making on their own. Um, with estradiol too, there's uh, vaginal forms that can be really, really helpful for individuals, um, even younger individuals that have, say, never had proper estradiol exposure, um, to be able to try to create more integrity in the, like uh, the, the not only vaginal tissue and vulvar tissue, but then also within our urinary tract, um, as that's really, really important. And so there's different forms of vaginal. I mean, there's rings. There's creams, there's a tiny little pellet that actually uh, you insert in. There's different types of suppositories and each of these actually will act different in the body. Some of them are localized and some of them are systemic. Uh, Some of them have a small ratio of systemic but they're still systemic. And so I hope, I know this sounds confusing, but it is. The reality is, I mean, it is. Um, Even for somebody who's been researching it, it is. Um, There are individuals, um, clinicians that will prescribe other forms of bioidentical estrogens, such as estrile or even an estrone, like a tri-blend. You know, the research is not quite there on those yet. Um, they, they've kind of said, hey, there's a lot of different forms. Let's just focus on some. Uh, with female athletes, they've been looking at the combination of transdermal patch and um, cyclical micronized oral progesterone. Uh, they've seen amazing changes uh, with bone um, and the actual microarchitecture of bone. They've seen amazing changes for uh, eating disorders and, and kind of attitudes towards bodies and food. They've seen changes also for just overall well being uh, in amenorrheic patients. But these have not been explored within your non amenorrheic patient that, say, just has hypohormonal levels when we go into the testosterone androgens DHA realm. Okay. So not not trying to get on my soapbox, but there's a lot there within sports. Okay. So so there's a lot there within sports. So, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, because of how we've labeled labeled drugs, um, we've labeled some steroids as being good and some steroids as being bad. Um, this not only means for the body, AKA a synthetic estrogen and progesterone is Big air quotes here, good for the body, but a synthetic androgen is bad for the body. Even though, when you look at their risk properties or their potential, what I call um, unintended effects, because I think side effects is a little bit of an overrated one. If you know you're taking a certain compound, it's going to have certain potential outcomes. But if you look at the unintended effects, what you see is that there are very similar things between an oral estrogen progesterone and an oral androgen. Uh, You know, lipid changes see similarities, Um, changes to liver function, similarities, Uh, changes to certain type of brain and neurochemicals, similarities. So when we actually look at what that compound is, we take away, you know, sex and we take away the names and where they've come from and whose bodies they're apparently supposed to belong to, we actually see these very similar profiles. But unfortunately, the powers that be within sport have labeled um, estrogens and progesterins as being A-OK, justified for use in sport, and androgens as not just. And that, as you mentioned, it is very hard to get a therapeutic use exemption. Um, I mean, it is like, in all of my years doing this, and even working with like doping control, I cannot tell you how many uh, cases have been denied. And I, it's, it's insane. Um, you know, I've even seen individuals that have had uh, hysterectomies getting and an and ooectomy getting denied, which is just like mind-blowing but it's because we don't associate androgens and testosterone with having a clinical need in the female reproductive body which is such farce i mean there's just there is so much science that says that's not true yet that's not you know that's the sporting powers if you want to play in their game you have to play by their rules unfortunately even if their rules are um, unethical and and not based on solid science um, super, super sad reality of the sporting world. And I hope one day it's going to change, but I can't say that it is because I think we've actually headed in the opposite direction. DHEA um, as, you know, as an androgen that's produced both in the adrenals and in the ovaries and in fat cells among other places. But, you know, it has been on and on. there's like a tumultuous relationship. It's been on the ban list. It's been off. It's been on for women, but only in certain circumstances. Um, now it's off again. And, and when you look at the science, I did a, a systematic review on the use of androgens in women and looked at a couple of the cases that were used by doping authorities for banning it. And it was mind-blowing. They used this one case of a young tennis player that had an adrenal virilizing tumor to be able to say what the side effects, figure quotes there, of DHA were. You can't. That's not good science. That is terrible science. But unfortunately, that's what was used, and that's what gets used to either justify the use of a drug or ban and prohibit the use of a drug. Um, and you know, it just it's it's sad. It, it's really sad because I wish there was a way that we could say for women, to, hey, if you're testosterone deficient, here is a pathway that you can take that will not create any noise. Um, with the powers that be. And, you know, there, unfortunately there really isn't. Um, uh, The testing is not a science in my opinion. Um, You know, you can take certain forms of hormonal contraceptives and they will flag positive for certain androgens because that's the crazy science of it all, that the chemistry, uh, the actual backbone of the molecules look so similar to certain anabolic androgenic steroids that are banned that they just get unambiguously kind of put into that pile of like, Hey, you've doped even though you're not on a drug and then you've got to fight it. And it's, it's ugly. It's gross. Um, there are even natural metabolites that uh, you know, are very controversial like nandrolone. Um, you know, the, I did a huge study on nandrolone that, uh, you'd probably love, it. I should send it to you. Um, send it, that, uh, send it my way. is all about the fact that here's a compound that when drug testing got introduced, they did not realize that humans have nandrolone metabolites. So they happen, you know, depending on when the person's tested and their own individual environment, you may have higher or lower levels of it. But in 1976, they didn't know that. In um, 1982, they didn't know that. So there's countless athletes that were getting banned for having natural nandrolone because the drug testing people said that it was you must have doped. It was a prohibited substance over time. Now they've increased the range that you're allowed to have the upper limit for women. It is a higher upper limit than men and that you do see this kind of almost linear increase as they start to learn more. But for example, if you're an individual that has just normal natural higher levels of nandrolone excretion and that you also are getting tested right after you did an outdoor let's say track session and you're dehydrated and your pee is going to be really really saturated and you're also in that kind of uh, ovulatory post-ovulatory phase Um, you will maybe potentially be on that higher end of what you're allowed if not sometimes over and then it's up to you the burden of proof is on you to show and that is just it's horrendous um, it's absolutely horrendous. It's mind-blowing to me. Again, it's like one of those things that this is, this is stranger than, than what we should ever be allowed to accept. I mean, they've now also um, you know, regulated the use of certain gonadotropins um, or uh, tamoxifen, for example, even fertility treatments. There's a lot of restrictions around that. Um, there are other types of compounds that uh, clinically are used in medicine, but within the world of sport, they are not allowed. Um, which what would be an example? Um, I, I mean, for example, different types of glucocorticoids and corticosteroids, um, that would get used for say treating injuries that you cannot use within sport, even with therapeutic exemptions, or certain, uh, bronchial dilators for asthma patients, um, certain types of, um, I mean, ephedrine, pseudoephedrine, that's a great one that a lot of people know about from just like stimulants, um, Testosterone. I mean, if you have a clinical need, like, I mean, it is so hard to get it, but that is a drug that gets used in medicine. Um, it is a drug that gets used a lot. And then there are drugs that are allowed that I shake my head and go, why? You know, if, he, if I use that really easy, tangible example of my own research, why have pharmaceutical estrogens and progesterone received zero attention? within the at least 21st century um, from anti-doping authorities. And I'm not saying that they should be banned. But within sport, when a drug has attention brought to it, conversation exists. I mean, I know you had Rick Collins on back at the beginning.
0: I I was just thinking about when we were having this conversation. And for you guys who don't know Rick Collins, he is a world-leading expert in steroid use. Um, He is the most knowledgeable lawyer that I know. Yeah. Uh, really incredible. Yeah, we had a whole conversation on exactly what you are talking about from more yeah. of a a male perspective. Yeah, and it's that uh, what he's really talked
1: about is like that overstating of risk. And that overstating of potential side effects that, you know, the, the sporting literature has overstated it and that that has actually directly affected the medical perception of it. Um, you know, people always say to me like, oh, sport, what is sport? Why are you studying sport? What is sport? I'm like, oh, guys, you, if only you knew that there is such a crazy (laughs) relationship between what happens in the military, what happens in sport. And that those two vessels have a massive impact on our scientific um, production of knowledge and our medical and our pharmaceutical. There is this crazy, crazy relationship there. Um, I mean, even if you just look at some of the research that has been done on, um, I mean, on androgens, who's doing it? There's been some newer research by the British military on contraceptives um, and and the use of certain forms for different levels of fatigue and things like that. They're the people that have the money to do the research and fund the research because academia is not it. Um, But that there is a huge relationship between what's happening in sport. and, And it's not just one way it's definitely bi-directional. Um, and that there are individuals that are sitting on certain types of committees that will maybe allow or not allow a drug in place, and that they may not be the world's leading expert on it. Um, they might not be even doing research on that, yet they're the ones that get to unfortunately make the decisions. And you know, and a great example is uh, hyperandrogenism really in female sport. Um, and if people aren't aware of it, that it started in about the 2010 to 11, 12, 13, 14 kind of realm um, that there was a a rule introduced that essentially was going to try to put an upper limit on a female's natural levels of testosterone. Um, It was an upper limit cap. And they essentially said, if you have more than this, you will need to do something to drop it down. And I mean, it's a human rights issue at this point. And I, I have colleagues that have been pushing it as a human's rights issue because that does not exist within medicine. This was a rule that was introduced explicitly for sport and it's not anything new. I mean, my research has shown that even the ideas around menstruation, uh, sex testing in sport, these things are only being given to the female body. They're only things that women are having to go through in order to enter into to do a sport, literally a game, um, which is so sad because what they were recommending was the use of a um, hormonal contraceptive, but specifically a strong anti androgen. Um, and you know, my argument was always that you know not all androgens are fun in games in the female body. Uh, you know, there are many different forms. There are some forms that might you know help depending on where they bind with muscle and performance and everything else. But then there's also the ones that are going to just make you fat, hairy and tired. Um, So, you know, it it was very, um, very terrible research. It was self-funded research too. It was not done by an independent body. It was funded by the sporting um, kind of powers that be. And luckily there are a lot of really amazing academics and legal that have been pushing back against it and trying to suppress it. But there are some women that have still been forced to do it. Um, And that is so sad. Because there really is no scientific proof that this has to exist. There's no scientific proof supporting that, you know, testosterone is is doing what they claim in any body, male or female. Um, And yet this goes back to those just ideas around what these hormones are. these so-called sex hormones and whose bodies do they belong in and what drugs we consider to be good or bad right or wrong ethical or not and that within sport it creates this microcosm that then reflects within to society um which is uh you know we we see that in everyday life right now with all the attitudes around hormone therapies and testosterone and menstrual cycle and you know all this stuff It, it just it all works together
0: Yeah. And what is so fascinating is we typically turn our attention to sport and military personnel for being early adopters. Everything else that they are doing, whether it's nutrition, whether it's supplementation, whether it's EMS stim suits, whatever it is, they are considered early adopters. And with that, it becomes very interesting that when we think about optimal performance, and we are not even talking about super super physiological treatment, we are simply talking about, again, in this conversation, we talked about oral contraceptives. We talked about the replacement of low levels of estrogen or anovulatory cycles with uh, estra, estradiol patches, um, estrogen patches, depending, uh, oral micronized progesterone, testosterone. We didn't really talk about the delivery, but I'm going to assume it's a subcutaneous uh, shot. Uh, typically, and that's what we use in the clinic, whether it's subcutaneous or topical. Um, and the restrictions on sport do lend and have unintended consequences of what we think about optimal health, what providers consider to be okay. I see lab work come across my desk all the time and a Testosterone level of 300 is perfectly acceptable for a guy, or a testosterone level, uh, free testosterone of a woman within normal range of 0. I don't know nine, and they're okay with it. Changing the conversation and really thinking about what optimal health is, which is exactly what you're doing, is critical. Understanding the history, you blending the humanitarian aspect with the science aspect is incredible. And you and I could, uh, we could easily talk for another hour um, if you'd like to. I sure can. If you want me to, (laughs) I'm more than happy to. Uh, um, When we think about other ways, I do want to circle back in terms of other ways that we can leverage treatment, or let's say we have an individual who is not necessarily an aggressive athlete, but an individual who goes through anovulatory cycles and or heavy bleeding um, and is doing that. Let's say she's not even an athlete, mm-hmm. a uh, a life athlete, meaning she's an entrepreneur mm-hmm. or something like that. Where does other ways of a contraception come into play like the morena or a copper IUD? Mm -hmm. I'm just curious because I know that we're going to get those Mm -hmm. questions.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's lots of forms of uh, hormonal contraceptives that we didn't talk about. The the pill is just one of a
0: whole giant array.
1: Um, There is the, if we're talking hormonal, so there are patches now, there are implants, there are uh, like the actual hormonal IUD based, as well as there's like a vaginal ring. Um, I think there's like a new sublingual one. I mean, there's just lots of different routes of administration and that, like I mentioned with estradiol and progesterone these do have s- different ways in which they interact within, um, the, the systemic body. And then also locally as well on the actual like reproductive complex. Um, and then also with that kind of depends on, um, for me personally thinking about where was that individual before they started on a did some of these different forms and i'll use the idea of a marina iud um the the copper iud is a non-hormonal form um and that that i have to say the research on the copper iud is very much lacking um it's it's an older method it's been around but it definitely is quite lacking in terms of like how does this impact the physiological um Makeup of an individual, um, other than what we know is, uh, it creates acute inflammation, and that in certain individuals, that acute inflammation can have more of a detrimental impact on their overall ability to maintain a healthy ovulatory menstrual cycle. Um, one of the big things you see with the copper IUD is uh, heavier bleeding, and that's as a direct relationship to that, like acute inflammation that it's creating, as it's literally the way that I explain it is that it's like creating a defensive mechanism via inflammation like that is its defense wall that's its little army that it's creating to stop sperm from doing their job um and so typically the copper iud is not used for uh non-reproductive purposes unlike the other forms that will get used for non-reproductive purposes or non-contraceptive purposes um the the morena is quite interesting because with the morena um, it's definitely increased in popularity, uh, in the last, I would say decade or so in particular, you see this kind of change within the rates of use, um, not only in the UK and parts of Europe, Australia, Canada, and the U S where you do see a shift in oral contraceptive kind of transforming into uh, the Mirena. And one of the things that is, um, is great about the Mirena is that it is providing local Hormones. It's providing a localized progesterone. So, not progesterone itself, but progesterone. And that, that can be quite stabilizing for the endometrium, which means that if you are somebody that experiences like heavier bleed patterns, that that can help to reduce your bleed patterns. Um, however, what research has also shown, and this is actually done by like the powers at Marina itself, you just have to go like crawling through their archives to find yeah. it, is that it. it doesn't do it in everybody equally. Um, And so the way it actually influences somebody's menstrual bleed varies dramatically, whether it's their first IUD. So is this the first time the Mirena has been um, implanted or is this maybe a repeat and this you're on your second or third IUD and that you're gonna have very different experiences if it's at the beginning of implant or if it's further to the end of implant. Um, The thing about the Mirena IUD, like um, different types of other kind of like subcutaneous implants is that it's a reservoir. So what that means is that the hormones are getting um, provided to the body almost like a drip method, little by little by little. And the longer you have it in, the less hormones that will eventually get taken from that reservoir and so you see with the morena for example um you know within that first f- one to five years that's they recommend it implanted for one to five years uh depending on the the strength of it but typically it's one to five and then they say that do not rely on it for contraceptive for year six and seven um because they cannot yeah uh, provide enough insight to say whether or not that the hormones being kind of dripped from the reservoir are going to be sufficient to actually support, um, not allowing contraceptive to occur. Um, the first few years of a, of a Mirena, they have shown though, and this is again, Mirena themselves has come out saying this, that, um, you are more likely to experience potentially anovulatory menstrual cycles. And that's because there is a stronger effect of the hormones that are getting dripped out of that, um, that reservoir. Now, in an individual that, let's say, has a really healthy and robust um, H, so hypothalamus, pituitary, ovarian axes, um, that might not cause the same amount of um, upset as somebody who doesn't have a healthy ovulatory menstrual cycle. Um, It really is going to be dependent on what was the state when we implanted it. um, And then also some of the metabolic changes that you see what was the state of their metabolism and their overall like substrate utilization when that was implanted. Um, and so it definitely is going to be based on that individual as to how you respond to it. Um, with the Mirena IUD, one of the things that they do promote is that you can still ovulate, but even the company has now said like, well, maybe not in the first little bit, but then probably, yes, you can, maybe in some people. Um, let's say somebody has um, been diagnosed with a, um, Let's say polycystic ovarian syndrome, hyperandrogenism, and hyperinsulinemia. So that would be where we would see that at very high elevation of um, chronically um, high LH levels with more of a moderate to low um, in ratio respective. Though FSH, you're seeing chronic anovulatory menstrual cycles, uh, possibly high levels of testosterone and DHEA, and possibly high levels of um, total estrogen, estradiol estrone as a result of that tonically high androgens as well. Um, So in an individual like that, if you put a morena in place, it's going to definitely stop them from having a heavy, chaotic menstrual bleed because it's providing a progesterone to stabilize that endometrium. But that's what it's doing. It's not going to help you recover your hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axes. Um, That's not what it's going to do. It's just going to provide almost a symptom relief for one of the outcomes that you're experiencing. And that's for me where we do need to kind of expand on that conversation of, okay, it's really important to provide symptom relief. I am all about helping people get through day to day, but I also want us to think a bit more expanded and go, okay, is there other things that we could be doing that may be more optimal, not only for a short term, but long term as well. So, if somebody's experiencing these crazy chaotic bleed patterns because they're having unopposed estradiol in their endometrium, okay, well, why? Uh, okay, let's see an ovulation. Okay, cool. Could we get potential benefit then from doing something like a cyclical oral bioidentical progesterone level? We also know that that can have positive implications, the progesterone for helping with that altered FSH and LH ratio, um, and that that can actually help to get LH back in check after a while. May that individual also need something like, um, let's say, a, a um, like an aldactone or spironolactone to help as an antiandrogen, potentially. But I also think we can't look at that as being this end-all be-all cure either, because there are implications of that as well. So what else could we do? Metformin, for example, or a GLP-1 Those are ways that we can actually help with more of that metabolic side of why are they experiencing this heavy, chaotic bleed to begin with um, from a micronutrient, from a lifestyle intervention. There's so many other interventions that I think we have to also look to that because of hormonal, um, kind of the hormonal contraceptive hormonal estrogen and progesterone, the synthetic revolution we've failed to recognize. Mm. Um, you go back in in the medical history books from 1920s, 1930s, even before that, they were recommending that for um, menstrual uh, dysfunction or irregularity to eat a good diet. They were recommending for supporting your sleep and checking in on your mental health. Those were things that were listed as things you need to be doing. Um, and then that kind of advent of, of hormones led us in this total opposite direction. Um, that we're getting lost in today. So people will use these drugs and they won't actually have optimal health. Um, they will mask symptoms that are reflecting this poor overall state. But because they've masked the symptoms, they go, oh, hey, I'm healthy, I'm good, I'm great. Um, but then eventually, you know, the tower's gonna crumble um, because they can't sustain that for a long period of time.
0: I think that is so important to highlight And ultimately what you're saying is how do we leverage the body to be able to maintain lifelong vitality without a whole bunch of um, other additives, right? And I don't mean necessarily food, I mean oral contraceptives, what other or even addressing, like you said, PCOS, what are the things that we can do rather than masking symptoms, really getting to the underlying cause, even if at the underlying cause if we do have to address insulin resistance or metabolic dysfunction for a short period of time? Are we using, say, a metformin or a GLP-1 agonist? Victoria Fleckar, thank you so much. You are brilliant. A wonderful interview. I know that we're going to have a ton of questions. I'm going to include all the links on where to find you. I am so hoping that you will come back to talk more about your research. And, you know, we didn't even get to be able to talk about a portion of what I wanted to talk about. You guys consider this a intro course to the mind of Victoria. We will do another episode. What I'd love is if you guys would submit questions. I know that this is going to be a very popular episode and we will have her back to walk through uh, questions and perhaps we'll even do a case study. Maybe we'll even do one together, Mm -hmm. Victoria. Thank you, thank you so much. The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon podcast and YouTube are for general information purposes only and do not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional health care services, including the giving of medical advice, and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast, YouTube, or materials linked from the podcast or YouTube is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition. They may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professional for any such conditions. This is purely for entertainment and educational purposes only.